Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Kitty Sewell. I've been in the radio business for nearly 20 years, mostly working for public radio in the United States. In 2013, I quit my stable job and moved to Rome for just one year. That's where this podcast begins. And if you're new, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. A lot of interesting topics have come up over the years, and I'd hate for you to miss out on the adventure. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, and she's an expat who moved to Rome over a decade ago with a determination to stay whatever it took. She's also my childhood friend. I met her on the school bus in sixth grade. I hope you like the show, and if you do, tell a friend and take the time to write us a review. You could also participate in our share and win some prizes. Find details on how to play along at our About page at thebittersweetlife.net. We're glad you're here. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week, but I am joined by Christy Shermer, who you may not have heard of, but I've heard of her for a really long time because we've been trying to set up this interview for, what, two years? (laughs) We're always moving around. She's moving around or I'm moving around, and now we are both stateside. Who are you, Christy? Can you explain? I am a graduate student at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm an archaeologist, so I'm studying classical languages and literature and history and archaeology. Which is awesome, by the way. Yeah, it's it's fun. I think our paths are interesting because we seem to be like following in each other's footsteps. I, th- I think we've, at this point, we've lived in the same cities, but never at the same time and have never met before. So, yep. So you're always in Italy when I'm not there. And yeah. you went to school in Seattle, which I've lived there for ages. And then now I'm in San Francisco and you were born here. Yeah. I grew up in a <laughs> suburb of San Francisco. And then as an adult, I lived in the city until I started graduate school. I waited a really long time. I got a late start. This is my second career. Well, where did you begin? What was the first career? I didn't really have a career. That was part of the problem. (laughs) I majored in English at the University of Washington, and then I worked as a bank teller. I worked for a plastic surgeon. Most recently, I worked for a medical school for the University of California at San Francisco for eight years. Fun, but it wasn't my passion. So I decided to throw caution to the wind and do a PhD in classics, which is perhaps the only major that is less practical than my English major was. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. I was an English major too. Did we know that we had that in common? I didn't know. In classics, what does that even mean? Does that mean you're you're reading what? It means Latin and Greek. It's basically the history of the ancient Mediterranean world. Greeks and Romans in a nutshell. So we study their languages, their literature and history, and I'm in the classical archaeology track. I study the material remains that they left behind. Yeah, and so one of the things I think that we touched on first and why we first started trying to do an interview is that you spend, what, at least three months a year in Italy at archaeological sites. Where were you last? Sicily, is that right? Sicily, yeah. So right now I'm part of a project called the Contrada Agnese Project, a subproject of the American excavations at Morgantina. It was a Greek settlement in central Sicily, it was settled in the going back to the Bronze Age, but it sort of flourished in the third century BC. 
and then was sacked by the Romans in 211 and still inhabited. So we're sort of trying to figure out what was happening after 211 BC when the Romans took over. Right. So how do you even go about that? Most of us have not been at an archaeological site. We basically dig very systematically. Everything's very organized. Archaeology isn't like Indiana Jones. No? (laughs) Paperwork is very slow. It's sifting dirt and looking for artifacts and organic materials that were left behind. All of these pieces, and you sort of have to put it back together in your mind like a puzzle and figure out what, what was going on. We're looking at like phases of buildings and how this like particular area of the city changed over the centuries. And we're trying to learn everything about who was living there and what they were doing there down to who they were, what they were eating, what they were making. Yeah. So from your point of view, as a person who studies the classics, what is the value of us trying to figure that out? Oh, it feels trite to say something like it, it helped. I mean, it does sort of help us understand our current world if we understand what happened in antiquity and it's useful to understand what humans have been doing. It enriches our modern experience, I think, to know what people in antiquity were experiencing and what was happening historically or socially. What, their understanding of the world? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, I often think about our modern world and what people are going to think about what we were doing. Like People in 2,000 years will be looking at what we were up to and... Archaeology is interesting because we can learn a lot about them, but you sort of have to realize that you're never getting like an objectively correct picture of what a group of people were doing. So everything is sort of through the lens of classics and scholarship. And we're sort of trying to reveal a picture, but it's like, I think maybe it was Mary Beard who said this once. We're sort of looking at it through a window. We can never see it directly, but I think it's helpful to understand what people were doing and noticing both both the similarities and differences between ancient people and ourselves. Yeah, we had Mary Beard on the show. She was saying that, you know, part of the problem is, is that we have all these records of the rich people and the poor people and their things just vanish. So we only know them through the lens of what the rich people are saying about them. That is a particular interest of the project I work on. We're looking at a smallish but typical Greek city with an agora and temples and a theater and we're looking at an area of town a little bit away from that that we believe probably had more everyday sort of regular folks living in it and we're sort of hoping that will give us help fill in some of those gaps exactly what you just mentioned the things that elite writers didn't care to write about and it's still useful to hear their perspective and you can still learn a lot from an elite author who was writing about either elite people or poor people, as long as you realize that what he was writing isn't some objective historical fact, you can kind of, when you know what you're looking for, you can sort of read between the lines a lot. And that's, that's always fun to do. So when you're traveling over to Italy regularly, are you always going back to the same place? I am now. So this will be my fourth year on this project. I did about four or five seasons with the project in Pompeii. Two years before that, in a small town in Lazio, northern Lazio, is called Capena. I worked on the Italian mainland mostly, and now Sicily. I consider myself a Roman archaeologist. That's where my expertise lies. But I 
am pretty much at a Greek site now. So I don't know if the average person cares about that distinction. But for me, it's sort of interesting to learn more about Greek artifacts and seeing the differences between their material culture and what Romans left behind. So, so I bet the one question people always ask you is, the equivalent of what famous people have you met that I always get is uh, what's the coolest thing you ever found? I don't have any great answers, but I also sort of like to joke that I like really boring things and I get excited about things like bricks and something we call slag, which is like the remnants of production, basically. They're like metal or ceramic production leaves traces and I tend to find that sort of thing interesting, but it's not beautiful or exciting. I get really excited when I can dig a drain or anything that was like a garbage pit that's going to get you a lot of real information that's useful and people weren't putting it there deliberately garbage is a really useful thing to study if you want to know about people because if you ask someone to describe themselves or like their daily life or what they eat or what they throw away they will not tell you the truth not because either because they don't notice it or they you know are like exaggerating or concealing certain things it's kind of nice to see an objective picture of what people were actually doing. And I'm particularly interested in ancient diet. What were they eating? I mean, they ate something that we refer to the Mediterranean triad, which was grain, olive, and grape. So wine, olive oil, and, and grains. But a lot of the archaeology that is concerned with learning about ancient diet is revealing Every year, more studies are coming out, and we're learning that their diet was a lot more diverse than we thought it was. Historically, scholars have assumed that poor people didn't eat very much at all or didn't eat very much meat or a variety of vegetables and things. But it seems like the diets were different. Regionally, there were a lot of differences between social classes. There were differences, but it was a little more nuanced than just rich people ate meat and poor people didn't. Unpacking those differences is fun. Did the archaeology or the classics come first? What's the path on you? Classics came first. So I don't know. I did a study abroad in Rome when I was a junior in college with the English department. It was fine. I loved Rome. I sort of fell in love with the city there, but I found myself a lot more interested in the things that the classics students were doing and the things that I had a good friend who was in the Italian studies department. And I kept finding myself drawn to Rome through from a different perspective than the one I was getting in my department. I think it was at that moment where I wished I had majored in classics, but I didn't I didn't really know that that was a, something you could major in. Yeah. When got to college. My parents didn't go to college and I liked reading as a kid and so I just sort of fell into English. I wasn't very mindful about choosing that as a major. So by the time I realized that there was a topic I was more interested in, it was too late for me to switch. But then I thought about it every year for years. I was just thinking about it and every time I would hear about somebody who was a classics major, I would feel this twinge of jealousy. And I decided I would regret it if I never explored that more. The more I learned about archaeology, the more I realized that that appealed to me. What was the appeal? Was it the discovery or the digging in the dirt, the physicality of it? Or? Yeah, it's all of it. I like digging in the dirt. We sometimes call ourselves dirt archaeologists. Archaeology is great because we're always incorporating new technology that help us answer questions. Like what? So we've got people who are doing environmental analysis, so we can look at the microscopic level, what kinds of seeds and so forth people were eating. We can do like pollen analysis. 
We've got people who are building an augmented reality of our site. We've got drones that fly over every day and take high resolution images of our site. And just something as simple as that gives you literally a new perspective on on a trench you're digging that you don't have from the ground. Where do you live when there's a whole bunch of you over there? Is it like going to camp? I have worked on projects where we lived in tents, but this one, we tend to live in various apartments in a small town. It's a small town in Sicily called Idone, and we rent apartments. And we're scattered around town a little bit, but it's such a small town. I think there are like 2,000 people who live there. So we're all pretty close by. And it is a little bit like summer camp. I tend to joke when I'm like talking to undergrads who are interested in doing this. I say this without experience in either summer camp or the military, that it's sort of, <laughs> I feel like it's what I imagine the combination of those two things to be like. You have to work really hard. There's a lot of physical labor involved all day. And then at the end of the day, we all get together for dinner and sort of a mess hall, essentially. So it can be hard, especially because a lot of academics are introverts to spend so much of your time surrounded by people and the same people every day, trying at times. But um, I think if you can just sort of embrace it for what it is, it's fun. I think it does have a summer camp vibe. The stereotype is that if you go away on a job to a conference, ultimately a whole bunch of people are going to hook up the lost weekend. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's never been the case on a project I've worked on. There have been a few like long-term love connections on our project. There are a few, a few marriages. Oh. And now a baby has come out of one of these. So. And is the baby named after the project in some way? No, the baby, we were trying really hard to give the baby a, a name that Morgantina would have been a great name for a baby. It's <laughs> <laughs> a cool name. That's a great name. But yeah, every year or two, a couple meets and finds true love, I guess. Yeah. Maybe it's my turn next. That's never happened to me. So. Yeah, let's hope so. Another thing that you wrote me about was a while back we did a few episodes called Advice, where we were talking to Darlene in New York, who was asking the question about when is the dream too late of her wanting to move abroad to Italy. But now she's, I think she's exactly your age, actually, 36 years old, and, and she's got a job that she really likes, and that job is in New York City, and when do you go, it's too late for me to make that big of a change. Not to say that you can't find an academic job full-time over in Italy, I would think, but you said that you had some of those same questions that she had. Yeah, there's a part of me, um, I, think, I think another reason this career appeals to me is because it lets me go back to Italy every year and I have like a professional reason to do so. But I definitely feel like I've made the right decisions, but I sometimes wonder if I just decided after I graduated from college and already decided I loved Rome, if I had just moved there, maybe I would have been happy with that. I love Italy. I think most of my colleagues are really eager to come back to America by the end of the field season, and I'm never happy to come back. I'm always sad. I always get to the airport, and I'm very sad to be coming home to America because it doesn't, I don't know, I feel like I don't have a home base here anymore. Maybe that's part of it. But it's hard. I mean, the academic job market is notoriously bad. It's quite bad for my field. And I think I think it's even harder to get a job in Italy because they, they will hire Italians before Americans. You're sort of in the in-between here. How much longer until you're out of school and you have to figure out what's next? I know. It'll be two or three years, I think. So I've just finished coursework now, this month, and I'll start writing my dissertation in the upcoming year and 
I'm at a state school, so we have five years of guaranteed funding, but I don't know. So I'll have to, I will have to sort of start applying for fellowships and funding to continue doing research and maybe do some traveling. But yeah, in the next three years, I'll have to face face the outcome of, of this decision. And I don't know. I don't know what it'll be. Well, I mean, the journey, though, has been good. So in that way, it was a good decision. That's one of the reasons I, I did it. I waited. I hemmed and hawed for years. A good friend of mine also at the same job, her name's Helen, and she was sort of my de facto life coach at work. She listened to me complain and... <laughs> I don't know, just have an existential crisis every week. And eventually it came down to her asking me, what are you afraid of if you do a PhD? What's the worst case scenario that is worrying you? And I said, well, I'm afraid that I won't be able to find a job. And she said, any job or, you know, an academic job? I said, any job, I guess, because I have a job now and it pays the bills. And she said, you know, don't worry about that. So it was just, I just sort of had to get to a point where I had to view it as, an endeavor that I was going to enjoy while I was like on it. It's like, I'm on this train and I'm enjoying the ride. And if it comes to an end and then I have to do something else, that's not the end of the world. And that's better than not having gone for it. Because I think, I think I'm somebody who would be plagued by regret if I didn't try. I know that there are other kinds of jobs out there besides academic ones that I could find, right? Like there are other things I could do I could carve something out that worked for me, I think. Part of me is always expecting to fail <laughs> eventually. <laughs> no, that sounds kind of sad, but I think it's helpful <laughs> to acknowledge that it's not going to be easy or, or perfect. No. But I mean, to fail, I mean, that's a big thing. I mean, what does is, what is failure look like? Yeah, for me, it would be not getting not getting a job, but there aren't there just literally aren't enough jobs for everyone who's qualified. So the people who don't get them, it's not because they didn't deserve them or weren't good enough. Uh, I think that's a hard thing to wrestle with. I think most of us and I understand that it's not personal. Yeah. And if it were up to you and you could do anything, what is that? By the way, I don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> So. I know. I mean, I'll try to get an academic post. Teaching or still in the dirt? Teaching, but yeah, I would want to be in the dirt in the summers. Yeah, I would definitely want to be doing this kind of research. I love it. It's such an interesting way and it's such an interesting view of Italy that I haven't heard. Since you're kind of interested in the ancient times, do you see Rome or Italy in a, a wildly different way than, say, I would or Tiffany would? I don't know. Maybe. I, I mean, a lot of a lot of the things that Tiffany mentions, she sort of views it from a similar standpoint. Although, you know, I think she she's sort of tuned into the ancient history, which to me isn't ancient, like the Renaissance and so forth. Um, so she's sort of seeing it broadly, all of Rome's history, which is one of the things that makes that city so so exciting. It's weird because I am always there for work, but I don't actually work there. I'm not like somebody who lives there like she does and has a job. And so I am in sort of this in-between space, which isn't, I guess it isn't really real life. Well, it is in the fact that you're, you're living it, but it's not the real life of Rome, maybe. I think I have to like realize that I, I enjoy my time there, but I couldn't extend my time there indefinitely, right? Like I could never, I could never move there and do what I'm doing year round. It's not a real job. I don't feel like a tourist there, but 
I definitely don't feel like a local. So a lot of the conversations you guys have about feeling like a local and feeling like you belong and you kind of have this sense of not ownership, but something akin to ownership when you're in a place and you see one of your recent episodes, if you see tourists who are like newer than you talking about it and you're like, Oh, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. They're definitely those feelings, but then I turn around and meet someone else who feels that way about me. So. <laughs> I don't know. I think you got some ownership. I mean, you know what more what's going on below the earth than probably the average person in the area that you're in. I guess that's true. That's one of the good things about Italy. If you put a shovel to the ground anywhere, you're going to find something. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty exciting. It's so interesting. One thing that's interesting about the history of Rome, at least from what I've learned from Tiffany, is that there were so many years when people didn't value archaeology at all, like rip stuff down, reuse it, move it around. And then we see this advent of people becoming interested in preservation and archaeology so late. In some ways, it's almost what you're doing is sort of a new thing. We don't think of it as new because it's been around for so long in our lives, but you're valuing stuff that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years nobody valued at all it's true and even within the field of archaeology i think in 25 years people are going to be horrified by some of the things we're doing because we're we're a little bit horrified by things people were doing definitely when archaeology was brand new a couple hundred years ago but yeah as technology improves we like learn more about information that we could have been preserving more carefully or getting, right? Things that seemed invisible, like pollen cores, right? Like that's not something that people were thinking about. The cultural memory in a place like Rome is so rich that it is sort of hard to unpack what that means for people, what it meant for people in antiquity and what it means for the people who grew up there now. I mean, the locals have a, a different relationship to the physical remains than I do. That kind of puts us in an awkward position, I think, too, because we're there as ambassadors for their cultural heritage, but it's not our cultural heritage. As Americans, it's not mine. Yeah, all the things that we can't see from the past. Yeah. We'll never, I'll never solve it. Does it bother you that you can sort of get some answers, but you can't really get the answer? Or you'll never know if you had the answer? Yeah, it doesn't bother me, but I think it would bother other people. Right. Yeah, I think there are a lot of people who would go crazy in this field because it's not like mathematics where there is a correct answer and we can solve it. I think you kind of have to be open to being flexible and be open to acknowledging that you can write an article or a book and feel very confident that you have used all the evidence that was available to you to make a strong case. And then new evidence will come to light that just totally destroys your thesis. And you have to be willing to be okay with that, I think. As a group, we tend to be pretty curious. And I think that curiosity fosters a lot of good collaboration and willingness to be wrong sometimes in the service of the greater good, which is to understand the ancient world better, how we write history and that it isn't objective and it's not, there's never one version of the story that is 100% correct. We, yeah. we tend to not find like pat answers. We tend to complicate our understanding, which I like it, but yeah, yeah. not everybody likes that. So would you say that the way that you guys are going about it now where you're seeking the answer to a question, is that the more common the School of Archaeology is heading in that direction rather than the big glory sites at this point. There's definitely been a shift 
in the kinds of questions people are, are asking. And I think people are generally less interested in finding the most spectacular monument and finding like the burial of a king who was famous or something like that. And I think now we see the value in the smaller stuff that tells us more about the world, about society and the ancient economy and culture contact and things that, that weren't written about in the texts that we kind of only can find through archaeology in some cases. Well, what's the question that you're trying to answer in Sicily right now? How the Romans, by sacking the town, changed the culture from that point on? Yeah, who who stayed, who left, what, yeah, how did it change their daily life? What activities did they cease doing? What activities did they start doing? All of these kinds of things that get glossed over in the, the histories, because it wasn't interesting. Livy is one of our, our good sources for Roman history and he wouldn't have been interested in that. He was interested in telling us what happened and the city was sacked and it was given to Spanish mercenaries. It wasn't important to tell us much more about that because that was sort of like, that's the end of that anecdote and let's now we can talk about something else. So yeah. yeah, we're sort of interested in seeing what changes that introduced. And that has interesting implications for modern times, right? When war, I mean, war is, it was everywhere in the ancient world and it's kind of everywhere here too and today and it's sort of I think helpful to understand how cultures come together and what happens when a city is taken over or destroyed and then left or destroyed and administered we're not looking for beautiful artwork or architecture but if we find it we'll certainly be excited you said that in some times in looking at the ancient world you find things where you think what were these people thinking? Yeah, like somebody doing something that seems nonsensical. This comes up when we find maybe like a doorway that was blocked off in ancient times. We've got a room and it's got a door. And at some point, somebody walled it up. Sometimes you'll find a room that you, and you can't even find the door. Like you don't know what was happening. Like there must have been a door here and I can't see one. Statistically, this was like a common activity in the ancient world. But then there are also like one-offs where, yeah, some person might have just made this weird decision to block off this room and there was some idiosyncratic reason behind it. Just like I'm sure I could excavate a modern house and somebody will have built a really weird kitchen island in like a terrible place that doesn't make any sense or something. It's helpful to me to remind myself that these were real human beings making these decisions and they weren't, they're not always gonna make sense to us. And it's not, and it's not even always because there's an excellent reason for it that we just don't know about. Like sometimes it might just be, this person was a weirdo and I don't, I don't know, they didn't want this, they didn't want this room anymore. And they decided to throw garbage in it and wall it up. It's funny when you can, you've got a good enough sense of what you're digging up that you can kind of see the person thousands of years ago who did it. And you can sort of imagine maybe there was like a neighborhood spat with their neighbors they were having a dispute and they decided to like be spiteful and throw a bunch of trash in the alleyway and make it inaccessible to the guy they didn't like next door or something like that and like every once in a while you can see little glimpses of that sort of behavior and it's it's fun yeah it reminds you that maybe we haven't changed all that much i mean it's true like culturally ancient greeks and romans were so different from us but on a human level yeah Petty grievances existed, jealousies. A lot of our emotions are pretty universal, it seems. 
Well, we should leave it there, I guess. Thank you so much, Christy, for doing it and for reaching out and for uh, listening to the show for as long as you have. All those things. You guys are great. I love, yeah, I love hearing so much of what you guys talk about really resonates with me as, yeah, I think one of the things that draws me to your show is just feelings about travel and home and this, like, the pull of a foreign country and this, like, wanderlust. This is just my version of trying to satisfy that, I guess. I don't know. Well, once you are three years out, if the show still exists, then we'll have to check with you and find out. Maybe you'll be wandering over in Italy much more full time than you are today. We'll see. Yeah, I hope so. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Visit the donate page on our website, thebittersweetlife.net. All donations are reserved exclusively for the creation of audio content. Your financial support keeps us strong. Thank you.